Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. My imagination is always the possibility of what I could be was greater than what I knew. Mm. And it was just, that was a given. And I think we all are possibilities greater than what we know if we can allow ourselves to trust that we can be more. Hola, mi gente. It's Odalis Jasmine, and you're tuning into Hello Latino. You know, y'all, after every episode, I feel this sense of wow, of, of just the vulnerability that each and every guest brings into this space and their ability to be so real. I'm honored, so, so honored to kick off Hispanic Latino Heritage Month with this episode, Con Una Mujeron Completa. If y'all didn't know, Rosanna Deruti is LinkedIn's head of global diversity, inclusion, and belonging. She brings broad, cross-functional human resources and leadership experience in attracting and developing high-performing talent. Rosanna's focus is on empowering all employees, members, and customers to realize their full potential. With Rosanna's leadership, LinkedIn aims to continue to build on a strong culture that values diversity, inclusion, and creating a sense of belonging for all employees. This episode is going to give you all the butterflies in, in every way possible. Que disfruten. Oh my, I'm still in disbelief that you're here. I'm looking at Rosanna Derupi. The one and only. I'm so <laughs> thrilled to be here with you. The I one and only. I didn't know when we were going to make it happen, so I was just happy to see it on the calendar. Oh, I am so happy. And I'm happy for so many reasons because, and I'll start with the first. We just had an event with the intern program where I hosted you for the speaker series and Rosanna in that whole conversation, I was like, I just want to ask her so many questions about how she grew up, where she comes from, her story. And I was like, we're keeping it about dibs. But so much of that conversation, I was so curious to learn more about you as a human. So I'm glad I get to do that now. <laughs> uh, thanks much. I'm excited that we get to have this conversation. Yeah. It's really, you know, the origin story. Don't we all have one? The origin you know, story, the origin story. I want to start with the first question that I ask every guest, and you will love this. I have asked the same question, how many episodes do I have now? 60, 70 episodes, and no one's answered the same. So curious to, to hear your, your response. The question is, how do you identify and why? I identify as Latina, um, Afro-Latina for many audiences, but I think my origins are very much in my mom's Puerto Rican roots. Uh, my dad was from Cuba. Spanish is my first language. And so before I even had a concept oriented around race or even identity, I was Puerto Rican growing up. And, you know, I think in this work of diversity, identity is a really interesting question um, because we are who we choose to be, not what someone labels us as. And when I was a little girl, um, there wasn't a Latino identity. And if you leave the United States, there isn't a Latino identity. We're Puerto Ricanos and Dominicanos and Cubanos and Colombianos and Mexicanos, Argentinos. So I really, um, I own all of my labels and identities. I have many, um, but I think I was born Puerto Rican and feel that way. Mm. And that's such a, it's such an interesting concept that, you just said identity is something that you can make. And I feel like what I've learned throughout every episode, every conversation that I have is that we are kind of a collection of our experiences and that identifies us, right? And I think it's just, you're talking about that right now, growing up as Puerto Rican and that's all, it's all you knew and that's who you are. And you've grown into your Latinidad that way. I love it. But it, you know, it is very much the the birth of my Latinidad and the the journey as well. And when I think about it, 
you know, in reality, as human beings, we are not things. And so identities can sometimes feel more like a commoditization of who we are. Like, you know, our Latinidad is so varied and complex and nuanced. And, you know, it's in our language, it's in our food, it's in our, the complexions of our skins, our skin tones, in our hair texture, and um, in our upbringings, in, you know, the identities that we aspire to be even when we think about um, pop culture, uh, mm. depending on where you come from. And so, you know, I embrace all the facets of who I am. My Latinidad, I think I've always felt distinctly proud of um, and always shared almost proactively in case anyone might think to get it wrong. You know, I wanted them to know as Latina first. Ugh. And that's, I want to go back into your roots because you're talking about how you grew up. Let's talk about little Rosanna before she was Tia Rosanna. Like, let's talk about Rosa little Rosanita. Rosanita. <laughs> let's talk about little Rosanita growing up in a, in a Puerto Rican and Cuban home. Paint the picture for us. What was it like for you to grow up in that environment? You know, it was very interesting. I understood the cultures are very different. My parents were separated in age by 21 years as well. Wow. So there was a different dimension of diversity at play. And growing up in that environment, like elementary school wasn't typical for me. I grew up in Queens, but I went to elementary school in the South Bronx. Oh, wow. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the South Bronx, it was this place that in the 1970s was burning. It was basically black and brown. And it was a place in New York City where we saw a lot of poverty and people didn't have. My father worked for a multi-service medical center. He was a doctor, and he worked there part-time and had his own practice. And the community was my community. Um, the patients my father had, they were like extended members of our family. Uh, when they couldn't pay with money, they paid with food. They paid with love. They paid with care. And it gave me a very different sense of who I was. I was growing up middle class, but I was growing up in communities where some of the kids I went to school with didn't have coats in the winter. And so I also grew up with a real sense of what inequity looked like and a commitment to help equity um, be realized for everyone because no child should go to bed without a meal, shouldn't have clothing, shouldn't have access to good education or health care. And, you know, I guess my parents, my mom in particular, was raising a little activist of sorts. Um, you know, I was very aware of the world around me. And very concerned for the fact that the world seemed divided. While I went through elementary school in the South Bronx, I began middle school in Queens, near to where I live, but I was still a commuter kid. And I went from being one of many Black and Latina in school to being the only one in my class. And wow. I was going to skip eighth grade when I got to middle school, so it was going to be seventh and ninth grade. And so this becoming the only one came early in life for me. And it wasn't just the early one by virtue of race. I mean, when I was going to school in the South Bronx, I was the only, only one who didn't live in the neighborhood. And so the only one has been a little bit of a theme that I've experienced at different junctures in my life. Um, later in life, when I realized I was a lesbian, I was the only one in my family that I knew of. And so, you know, there is a comfort level with understanding that sometimes you are going to be different. There is nothing you can do and you can embrace that because who you are is what uniquely will create a value that no one else can create in the spaces you walk in the places you go. And so I grew up with the sense that it was my destiny to be that person who could help make a difference and be there for my community. Oh, my goodness. I want to there's two places I want to go right now. And I want to learn more about your parents. And I want to learn more about your experience being the only one. But let's let's take it back to your roots, because I think, at least from my experience, I learned so much about my Latinidad, my culture, when I started to really learn about my parents and their stories. And I realized at a certain age, I'm like, I never asked my parents their story. And, and I talk a lot about my problems, about what I got going on, but I never sit down and ask them like, y papi, como tu estas? You know, and mami, está bien. Like, I never sit down and really ask them 
questions. And so I lived with them when I was an adult and I had moments with them that I feel like are so special because I started to see them as human beings and started to learn about their immigration story, their parents' immigration stories, and how much that trickles into who I am. So I'm curious to learn, do you know your parents' immigration story? Do you know their story in going to New York and and creating Rosanita? <laughs> yeah, so I, I do. I was fortunate. My mom told me every story and still tells me every story. So now I, love I it. play back those stories to her. She came from Puerto Rico when she was just nine years old on the brink of turning 10. In fact, she arrived four days before she turned 10 years old. And she told me about the fact that she came over in an airplane, a propeller airplane on a 12-hour flight from Puerto Rico to New York City. Um, and that <laughs> when she was growing up in Puerto Rico, she was growing up in Luquillo, it, and then they moved to Fajardo, it always felt the town felt too small for her. She felt like that was not a place where she could be who she needed to be. She didn't feel understood by her mom. Um, my mom was and remains incredibly curious. Like she's the one who calls me up to tell me that she's hearing something on CNBC that I need to be aware of. <laughs> so, you know, she's, she's a firecracker. But I'd say that because I understood that my mom came here because she saw something more and she felt that the world was bigger than what she had access to. And I have tremendous and deep love for my family in Puerto Rico, but there isn't a doubt in my mind that I wouldn't be the person I am if my mom wouldn't have come to the United States. Mm -hmm. She created something different from the rest of her family. Different isn't necessarily better. It's different. Um, she viewed a world where she wanted curiosity to create opportunities for her child. And when I came, she's told me about all the hopes and dreams she's had for me. And Lord knows she's influenced me a lot. And so I really understood that her coming to the United States was because she wanted more for herself. But she saw that when she had children, she wanted more for her, for her kids. And I was that kid. Mm -hmm. And then with my dad. It was interesting because he didn't talk about himself. And my parents divorced when I was in my teens. And it wasn't until much later that I realized I didn't know very much about my father. I only knew about my father in that life I had with him as my dad at home. But I didn't know a great deal about his own origin story or what led him to come to the United States from Cuba and why he would seek to practice here. He came in the early 50s. He was the only member of his family to make that migration. So the rest of the family stayed in Cuba. And I haven't met them to this day. And he was one of four siblings. Um, and in learning little bits and pieces about dad, um, some of them were things I've heard secondhand. What I did get to learn from his own mouth uh, not long before he passed away was that he chose to come to the United States because he felt like there was something more as well. He felt that he needed to make his way here to realize his own aspirations of becoming a doctor. And he had already completed medical school in Havana. Um, I asked him how he actually got the opportunity, and it turns out that one of his classmates had applied for a fellowship at Sydenham Hospital in New York City and was accepted into that fellowship the year prior. And oh, so wow. he knew one person in the United States. That one person was also someone who was going to be a doctor who was in their internship, and he applied for the same fellowship. He got the fellowship, arrived in the United States with $10 in his pocket and a Spanish-English dictionary, and was very rapidly confronted with, how will I make my way from Newark Airport to New York City so that I can get to Sydenham Hospital to, you know, begin my fellowship where he would have housing and his needs uh, addressed. And he found a security guard at the airport and asked if he could help him make a call utilizing the Spanish-English dictionary to help him translate. Um, he called his friend that lifeline call and asked his friend if he could come get him. And the reason why he did that was he asked the security guard what the cost of a taxi from Newark Airport to Manhattan <laughs> would be. 
This is back circa 1951, and the cost was $10. So wow. he made his first choice. Am I going to spend the only $10 I have, or am I going to find a way to get to Manhattan without doing that? And his friend said, not a problem. I'll pick you up, but you'll have to wait till the end of my shift. My dad waited 10 hours. His friend arrived. What? And his life in New York City. Wow. And my parents, through my mom's cousin, my mom was a medic. My mom was a medical assistant, but at the time she was just a 15 year old teenager. And her cousin was a medical assistant to one of the best known, one of the few Latin Puerto Ricano doctors, Latino doctors in the whole in, in New York City, who was practicing in the Bronx, who was a friend of my father's as well. And they came over to the family's house, my, my aunt's, my great aunt's home, and my mom met my dad. Oh, um, so cute. He was 15. <laughs> he was in his mid-30s. He thought she was, like, pretty and hot. She wasn't interested. He courted for many years, and she married when she was 20, and he was 41. Wow. Wow. This episode of Hello Latino is brought to you by McDonald's. Buy one, get one for one dollar deal. Y para los que solamente hablan español, para que sepan, este episodio está presentado por la oferta Compra Uno y Llévate Otro por un dólar. It's always weird to me when the person you're eating with orders the exact same thing as you at McDonald's. O sea, if I'm getting a Big Mac, don't get a Big Mac. Diversify, sé creativo, be creative, and throw some respect on your order. Stop by McDonald's today and enjoy two favoritas for only $6. Y'all can also order a quarter pounder, 10-piece McNuggets, or a Big Mac. Y recordate que tenes que dibujar tu propio camino. Don't be ordering the same thing as your homie. Visit a McDonald's today y disfruta. Um, I'm thinking about... I'm coming up with so many ideas in my head of like, your mom just shows this curiosity, this like almost risk taker, right? And your dad shows this like, this feeling of, how do, what, how do I say it? Like resilience, like, like I'm not taking no for an answer. I'm going to wait 10 hours here until I can get to where I need to go. When you think about these stories, how does that make you feel? Or what, what becomes clear to you when it comes to your identity? Yeah, I see a lot of myself in in the two of them. Uh, you know, I don't know that I would characterize myself as a risk taker, but <laughs> even what I did today as a career didn't exist when I went to college. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the sense for justice, the sense of curiosity, but also the sense of how do I get from here to there, which characterized my father's journey is very much what I find myself navigating when I'm working with others. I don't worry so much about my own journey as I think about how do I connect the dots so that others can fulfill their potential and realize their journey. And that expression has served me well because it's always created the path for my own self-fulfillment, for my potential to be realized, and for me to get to do some amazing work. Mm. Now I want to jump to you being the one and only in, in these spaces of going to the school, of just navigating this different worlds, being lesbian. How, how did you start to navigate that? What Paint a picture for us of that feeling of feeling like the one and only. It's interesting because I don't know that I had a distinct feeling of onlyness. Like, I recognized that I was the only one in the room, but I never felt less than. I didn't feel a fundamental insecurity. And yet I recognized that there were obviously things that I was doing to fit in. You know, I was the girl who could talk sports like no other girl. And so (laughs) the guys all felt like totally comfortable with me. My male classmates, like, I was cool. They, They would talk to me about all sorts of sports and I could roll with them and I could play with them. And I think with, you know, the girls, I just always had just sort of very easy. I'm not a competitive individual in that way. Like, I really support my friends and I want to see them succeed. And so even as a teenager, you know, coming of age 
challenges were a little different for me because as I became a teenager, I was already uh, in high school. I was fortunate enough to skip a couple of grades and graduate by the time I was 16. Okay. So, okay, yeah, a, subtle flex. A couple of, <laughs> you know, flex and, uh, you know, I didn't have some of the concerns my friends were already worrying about, like boyfriends and stuff. I was like, just not ready for that and not really interested in that at that point in my life. I was on a mission uh, mm. academically, I was on a mission to get into Harvard. Like, I was eight years old when I decided that was where I was going. And so really? you could say you were that eight I'm years old, eight years old. Wow. Wow. Where did that come from? Uh, <laughs> See, you're going to laugh about this. <laughs> it came from the movie Love Story. I saw Love Story, which is, a, you know, classic romantic so story. Of the Harvard boy <laughs> meets the Radcliffe girl. They fall in love and she dies at 24. But. It was a story that so profoundly reached me to see a female lead actress who was smart, maybe smarter than the man who was, you know, interested in her. And he was wealthy and she wasn't. And she came from her ethnic roots um, of Italian descent. And, you know, he was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant fourth generation at Harvard. And, you know, I'm, I look at it now and I think, wow, that is so not my story at all. But what was very clear to me was I wanted to be in an environment where smart people were and where the possibility of finding your soulmate, whoever that person might be, could exist. And it wasn't a function of someone who necessarily came from your background. It could be someone entirely different. But even then, I think I understood love is love. And uh, I didn't recognize what that would mean for me later in life. But early on, I thought, how amazing to be in an environment that feeds your brain and to have relationships that you want to give your life to. Oh, my goodness. We're going to get to your love story at some point, too. So I want to hear that. <laughs> but you're talking about feeling like the one and only, but you were on a mission to get to Harvard. And so, and I'm thinking, I'm literally painting a picture of you in my head of Rosanita being the cool kid in class. Everyone loves her. She's the youngest one. And I'm feeling too, thinking about the one and only, you're the one and only person in there, but you're also the youngest, but you still didn't feel that feeling of otherness or did you? I knew that I was different, mm. but I think I always felt different even at home growing up and I didn't equate being different with being bad. Yeah. I was just different from others. And I think being different allowed me to see things that people often can't see in a world that surround, surrounds them and reflects everything that they know. There's something about being the only one, being the outsider, that gives you an opportunity to take in with a full perspective what's going on in your environment. And you can see things, I don't know if it's more clearly, but for me, it's always been the ability to see things that sometimes others can't see. And I think it gave me a reputation at a young age of being an old soul. Uh, it gave me um, the reputation of being someone who understood things far beyond my years. And I was never afraid of it. And I wasn't ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. I think my great struggle came when I saw that I was often labeled as a result of being the only one, not by the people who were different from me, but by the people I thought I came from, by mm. my own community. And at an early age, I recognized that not everyone is going to root for you, even if you have experience and culture and possibly even upbringing in common. You know, the perception at times was that because I was smart and because I was going to skip and because I seemed to have these advantages that I thought myself better than others. And that used to really break my heart because that certainly wasn't how I viewed myself. And maybe I wasn't particularly self-aware, but I'm fortunate to even to this day have relationships with people um, that I went to school with 50 years ago. And that's a really long time. Wow. And I'm really thankful that I still have, you know, those folks in my life. I'm still in touch with my fifth and sixth grade teachers. <laughs> and relationships have always been important to me. They've always mattered. And 
really fortunate to work at LinkedIn where we talk about the importance and how relationships matter in our ability to realize our, our potential and to help others fulfill and realize theirs. But it just struck me as almost ironic that you would think that, you know, I would have thought people who are brown like me would cheer the fact that I'm skipping a grade and skipping another grade. And yet what I often heard were, were things that were hurtful, um, you know, being characterized as an Oreo or being characterized as not black enough, not Latina enough, despite the fact that I've always been fluent in my Spanish language and I've always worn this brown skin very proudly. So there is a lot of learning and unlearning that life has, uh, has provided me with. I I love that you're painting this picture because I think it's important to talk about that sometimes people in our own communities don't always have our back. And that's a reality. It's not like we're all Latinos, we're all here to win. Not everyone has that mentality. And that goes for every community, right? I love that you painted that picture because it's a really real thing. And being first gen, being all of those things, having different opportunities. It, I mean, it breaks my heart when my mom is like, mira la niña que hizo esto y el otro que está yendo al colegio y que se graduó y esto y el otro when my siblings just didn't have access to those things. And it breaks my heart when I'm like, mommy, stop. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like it's, it, it creates that divide that I know I feel a lot of their community members deal with. And it sounds like you dealt with that too. It taught me at an early age that belonging is something that is created by another for you. Yeah. That the color of our skin, you know, the ethnicity or culture that we're raised in does not define our belonging. And maybe that's why I'm in this work of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, to help people realize that it's not an automatic just yeah. because you grow up in a particular community or just because you speak a certain language does not mean that there's going to be automatic acceptance. And if you have aspirations and dreams and desires, to be supported in realizing that is not a function of race or ethnicity. It's a function of how do we just help each other? Because yeah. we're human beings living in this life and walking this walk together, how do we support each other regardless of where we come from? And yet, how do we celebrate each other and where we came from? I didn't grow up in a family of corporate executives or leaders. I was the first person in my family to go corporate. In fact, not long ago, I found uh, an offer letter that my uncle had received back in 1969 from IBM. My uncle had moved from Puerto what? Rico to New York, <laughs> was living with us for a time. My mom helped him apply to jobs. He had just come out of the Army, and he was extended an offer to join IBM as a he operator, um, I believe it was. And he refused the job. Oh, and, wow. you know, it's fascinating to see what might have been different for him and his life had he have done it. He had a successful career in Puerto Rico, uh, certainly. And so he wasn't in the corporate world. In fact, he was a, um, he supervised casino inspectors and retired from a government job. Wow. Uh, which is, yeah, he had a good time. He enjoyed himself. But I was the first in my family to actually have a corporate career and experience. And still today, there aren't that many in the family who are in the corporate world, per se, um, or have reached executive levels. And while I try to mentor and encourage, I think we all have our own self-expression and we all are motivated to do things that we'd like. And I certainly understand that it's really hard for anyone to be what they can't see. I recognize that my imagination was always bigger than my knowledge. And so I never imagined that I couldn't be what I couldn't see and that I couldn't create what I wanted to be. That just perhaps was in my nature. Um, maybe that's a little bit of mom, um, <laughs> a little bit of dad, a lot of both. Um, but it just never struck me that I would be limited to or defined by what's in front of me. I always knew that there would be something more and that I could create that something more myself. 
Can you say that one more time? You said my knowledge, or no, my imagination was bigger than my knowledge. Ooh, yeah, my, I, I really that. was. My imagination is always the possibility of what I could be was greater than what I knew. Mm-hmm. And it was just, that was a given. And I think we all are possibilities greater than what we know if we can allow ourselves to trust that we can be more, that the resources will be there. Sometimes we're stopped because we don't know how, but how should never be the determining factor. How is not um, indicative of whether we can get there. We'll just find the way there. But you know what, Titi? That reminds me of our parents. That reminds me of every immigrant that didn't know what they were coming into. But their imagination, their belief and conviction that there's something better out there led them to where they are. And it led us to where we are. And I'm like, that's, I know generational trauma is real and we talk a lot about it. But let's also talk about generational power and generational just blessings that they pass down to us to be able to step into the unknown, to be able to dream bigger despite our lack of resources. I mean, I feel like you just described that immigrant story. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually believe it is. I have deep admiration for the immigrant spirit. Like yeah. there is something about leaving home, literally and figuratively speaking, in pursuit of that dream, whether it's to create a better life for children that you have or children you haven't even had, or to create a better life for yourself and those who will follow. And, you know, maybe I'm still an immigrant in that regard. You know, I believe that the possibility that of creating something more for those who will follow is right within our hands. It's something that we build together. And the future is a creation, ultimately. It's not, it's just not a given. And so if it's a creation, let's create something that we, we love. Let's create something that inspires us. Let's create something more than what the past tells us we can have. Uh, let's just change the world, shall we? <laughs> Let's just change the world. Why not? You and me. Yeah, right. And that's my belief is changing the world one story at a time because people are tuning in and listening to your story and feeling like, oh my God, I went through that too, Rosanna. Or I'm experiencing that right now. And I want them to know that there is this other side of the story that they can continue writing and creating. And something that I love that you said to me once during that speaker series was, we are not our circumstances. And we get to kind of create the story that we want. And holding the pen, that's power, right? And I just feel like I want more people to do that in our community. That's, you know, that's beautiful. And I, I really, I want our stories to reach. Because I think all too frequently, and I get a little concerned about this with my 11-year-old, there's a perception that if it's not already there, if I can't already see it, if I don't see people like myself at, in leadership levels, then that's indicative of my own potential. And that for me is the same trope as being your circumstances. Right. We are never our circumstances. Because there isn't a leader who looks like me there, there may be many reasons, systemic and otherwise. But the long and short is there's no one there who looks like me. And that does not mean that I can't get there. That does not mean that I can't be a leader. That does not mean that I can't be that person who creates possibility that allows me to change the way the game is played, mm. to influence how others think about people who are different from themselves, to be that person who can help build the ladder of opportunities so that others can see possibility for themselves that they haven't even thought about. And sometimes we don't think about it. But it would be too easy for me to give my life away to someone else's expectations. It would just be too easy. It's kind of like, I don't know what the world expects of me, and I'm not sure that I really care. Um, Yeah. Oh, my God. What can I do that makes a difference? (laughs) 
Ustedes ya saben that I'm all about la cultura and showing up as your fullest, fullest self, which is why I'm extra excited that today's episode is brought to you by Chispa. This is an app that you can download right now if you're looking for love, trying to meet new people, or to find the next novio or novia you're trying to bring home to the family party. So check this out. Chispa is the number one dating app made para Latinos, a place where you can connect with someone like you, someone who loves la cultura, and someone, I mean, let's be real, someone that you can be your authentic self with. Y'all know I'm currently in a relationship with someone who's a proud Puerto Rican, and let me tell you, it's nice to be with somebody who loves the music, the culture, the food, just as much as I do, but most importantly, I really love that there are certain things I just don't have to explain. O sea, I can be hella Latina and he hella loves it. So if you're single, go on Chispa, find your Boricua Bay, your Honduran Bay, tu Colombiano, tu Cubanito. Uno nunca sabe. Something amazing could come out of it. Check out Chispa and tell your single friends too. It's free. Time to meet your media naranja. I always say you got to play the game to change the game. And I think that's that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, you are in this space, but you're changing so much of of these tropes and so much of these stereotypes just by just by the things that you're doing within LinkedIn and outside of LinkedIn, but also just your existence in itself. Like Rosanna, someone told me this and I want to tell it to you. Your presence alone is revolutionary. The fact that you're in this leadership position and that you are talking with such grace and authenticity in every space that you're in, it just speaks volumes that our presence in any space that we're in is revolutionary and we can change that game. And there's no rules for us. We can, we can go in there. <laughs> we can create a table if there is none already. I, I love that honor. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love the idea that if I've opened doors for others, that they not be afraid to be the first or the only ones in the rooms they walk into. And mm-hmm. that their responsibility is to make sure they aren't the last one. Right. Uh, right. You know, we can't always make determinations about how people live their lives, but we certainly can create the space to make sure that we're pulling people in with us, that we're giving them exposure and allowing them to see new possibilities for themselves and that they understand, you know, this world is big and vast and unpredictable. So you could either let it choose your path or you can just make your path and, you know, roll with the situations and circumstances and the experiences those situations and circumstances will give you. Like, you know, we could plan and God will laugh at our plans sometimes, but I don't believe that we lose opportunity. I think opportunity just looks different from what we might think it's supposed to be. And if we're not attached to what it looks like, we have so much more to build from. Mm. I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question about where we left off. You're talking about these folks in the community telling you you're not, you know, you're not black enough. You're not Latino enough. You're not this enough. And how did you get through this constant narrative being pushed on you that you're not enough? How did you navigate that? How did you ignore that? How did you acknowledge that? I mean, how did you just navigate that experience? And my mom always told me to consider the source. So it's <laughs> very... <laughs> Yeah, and this is perhaps where I may have grown up with a little bit of hubris. Um, <laughs> I always would look at people and and look at, at like, who are you really? What are you doing? Mm. You know, are you there? And you know, interestingly enough, my son uh, a few years back was being bullied by a kid in class, and we wanted to give him some form of power to like deal with the fact that this kid was taller than he is. And my son's pretty tall. He's 11. He's already taller than I am. <laughs> and, you know, we wanted him to feel like a little more empowered with things. And we realized he's not going to go in there and punch the kid. And we didn't necessarily want him to go do that. Right. <laughs> but when he, you know, the kid would talk about him or say stupid things. And we decided we wanted to give our son access to the future. And so... He was beginning to fall in love with, you know, Marvel superheroes and Star Wars. 
and Lamborghinis. And so oh. he had a model, <laughs> model Lamborghini um, that he had been given. And so he said, you know, one day you're going to grow up and you're going to be the one who buys and drives the Lamborghini. And this kid who's bullying you won't be. Mm. And he understood that it's like, if you're up to something, you're not going to be bullying people. You're not going to invest your time in making people feel less than. You're going to try to help pull people up. You want them to succeed. You want to see people like yourself succeed. You want to see others succeed because this isn't a zero-sum game. We all have to have a stake and we all have to have not just a chance to win because this isn't about winning or losing. We all deserve the opportunity to self-actualize and grow. And when we grow, everyone else can grow too. But no one grows by playing small. No one grows because someone else is less than. And so when things weren't going well for Luke in school and his friend would start picking on him, I say friend loosely, he'd say Lamborghini. And the kid would be confused, <laughs> didn't know what that meant. But I got that my son understood, while people are playing small, you're going to be the one who stands up. And when you stand up, you grow. And when you grow, you create opportunity for yourself and you create opportunities for others. So mm. Lamborghini. So Lamborghini. Oh, I love that story. And it, it just makes me laugh because my mom would always say, es que están celosos. O es que están esto. Did your mom ever tell you that? <laughs> Absolutely. All the time. It's a thing. It's like Latina moms. Something happened at school. They're just jealous of you. Like That's all I heard my whole life. And my mother has always said to me, dime con quien andas y te, di te diré quien eres. You know, oh, tell me who you time. work with and I'll tell you who you are. Which mm. is also really true. Like the people who care about you, who cheer you on, they are representative of who you are. But people who play small, and even today I have a visceral reaction to gossip. Ooh, like when yeah. people are talking about other people and demeaning them or making them small, doesn't matter who they are or what the situation is. I just feel it goes beyond discomfort. I feel like that's not a space I need to be in because we can't win in life by making other people small. I think it's a visceral reaction from childhood. Yeah, that's so, so real. And my, my parents would tell me that all the time. And I used to think, es que, ugh, you don't like him or you don't like her. And now I laugh because I tell them like every person that you were that you were like not happy with, you were right about. You were right every single time. And it's funny because I see that now with my nephews. I'm like, I don't like that kid. He's not. No, there's no good intentions there. Like you see it. And what's interesting to me is that so much of what our parents passed down to us, these little sayings, y bichos, right? Like, dime con quién andas y te diré quién eres. Like those type of things, I think we we saw them as so small when we were little, but I feel like I've grown to see it as such a big deal that they gave me that gift so early on. Absolutely. Um, you know, it stays with me in so many ways. And I understand that they're always going to look out for us. You know, when always. they love us deeply and dearly, <laughs> they just, and their words stay with us. You know, I am... I am no longer a kid, and I hear it like yesterday. And every now right? and then, my mother will still <laughs> recite our phrase, and I tell her, it's okay, Mom, I got this. Um, yes, but I think, yes. I think when you internalize that, you begin to recognize that our role in the world is to be a champion for others. No matter where we are, it's not about how much money you have in your pocket or how many degrees you have or the nature of your title. You know, I learned at an early age, that when you give, even when you have nothing, when you give of your talents, when you give of your time, and if you can afford when you give of your, your money, but most of all, when you give of your being, you grow and you help others grow. And mm. I think the work that I have the opportunity to do in diversity, inclusion, and belonging is about how do you unlock the ability for people to give to each other so that the world, as large as it is, grows, but it also grows connected, it grows more loving, it grows richer in the possibility of people having what they need to be fulfilled. 
It's not mm-hmm. about riches or wealth. Not everyone wants to be rich. Um, and not everyone wants the corporate executive title or career. But how do you help people find their path and be happy in life? Mm. You know, I something that I love about the Dibs work and the work that you do is that there there's a lot of healing and connection. And I mean, I just had a therapy session. Shout out to therapy. I just had a therapy session where we were talking about our nervous system and how trauma, our experiences affect the way that our nervous system reads danger or safety. And it affects our whole life. It affects our life expectancy. It affects um, our relationships. It affects so much, but it can be healed through connection. And, and, and that to me is so powerful because I think we grow up in a culture and in a space where I think connection is really valued and giving is really valued. And yet, at least in my experience, there wasn't a lot of space for vulnerability. And I think what I've come to learn is that, yes, connection can lead to healing, but you have to have vulnerability first to even get the connection, the real connection that we, that can heal us. Right. And I think that's beautiful work that you're doing in this space. And that I think that this space can give us right now is we're vulnerably connecting and that can lead to healing, that can lead to inspiration, that can lead to, I mean, if we really want to call it world peace, we can call it that too. You know, it can lead to so many different things where we can really change the game, but it starts with vulnerability. You express that so beautifully. Vulnerability is a superpower for connecting. And many people believe that the opposite of inclusion is exclusion. I genuinely believe the opposite of inclusion is withholding. And when we don't trust, when we are hurt, when we are upset or angry, we withhold ourselves from others, even from the people we love and care about. You know, why else Would it be so difficult sometimes to have a relationship with the people we love most? So this this concept of vulnerability isn't just something you do with strangers. Vulnerability is hard for most people with the people they love the most. And yet without it, how do we truly connect? How do we deeply love and allow ourselves to be loved? Because the same barriers we put up so that we won't be hurt are the same barriers that keep us from feeling the love that comes towards us, mm. keeps us from seeing the opportunity that awaits us. It keeps us from seeing the gift that we can be to another when we're forgiving. Um, and so I think you, you found what the superpower is for many of us. And even for me, um, vulnerability was something I had to learn because I grew up inside of you know, a narrative of not being vulnerable. Don't let anyone see you sweat. You know, never let people know about your business. When I realized as a young adult professional that I was gay, you know, when I finally came out to my mother, which was six years after I realized it, so I did my fair share of getting who I was, what I heard was, you can't tell your friends and you can't let people at work know about this because it'll get in the way of your career and people won't respect you the same way. And, and so I understood that I had to make decisions now that my mother would never be able to advise me on. You know, it was one thing that I didn't have family members who didn't have a corporate career, but now I was entering a domain of life and who I was going to be in this life that my parents couldn't help me with because they grew up in a world where being vulnerable was really dangerous. And so they chose to be invulnerable. They chose to be invulnerable with each other even. And that likely led to the demise of their relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of learning in life is sometimes what we unlearn, what we see and realize we might not want. And so what do I need to do to be different From that, what do I need to do to be someone who's capable of transcending that kind of dynamic? And for me, it was really about being vulnerable, allowing people to see me as I really am, not some, you know, pre-designed version of what the world should see in order for me to get ahead and be accepted and be admired 
But in fact, to really be myself and recognize some people would respect and admire me and other people might not feel comfortable with who I am. And it's fair to say that I was already in a pretty senior role when I made the decision to be out at work. It was a a different time. It was 20 years ago. Um, But even as I realized the importance of really fully claiming myself and being myself, there was still a lot of work that needed to be done to understand what real authenticity and vulnerability looked like. Because there was still that ability to just open little windows and let people see little parts of me. But to be able to tell the difficult stories of my own life's experience and what it's like to be afraid as you walk this walk. And fear is a natural part of living. You know, it's not for lack of faith or belief. Just sometimes you're afraid that it won't work out. Mm. And sometimes that's where people stop trying. Fear gets in the way. And then for others of us, fear is there, but the risk of not doing anything seems so much riskier than doing something. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. And this reminds me so much of what our parents say, la ropa sucia se lava en casa, and having to unlearn that every day. I'm curious from your experience, because you said it took you six years to tell your mom. Was that because you were still going through your own self-acceptance journey? Was that because it was scary to be vulnerable with your mom? What was the, what was the reason for that six-year mark? Man, I was freaking afraid. <laughs> You're like, mommy, I don't know what she's going to say. <laughs> I throw the chancleta at me and everything else. <laughs> I would have to put up with a few curses along the way. And mm. surely enough, it was true. But, you know, the fear to remain enclosed in the bud was greater than the fear to be myself. Mm. And until the moment came when I realized I, I just had to do it. Um, you know, I grew up in a family where not kind things were said about gay people. Right. Principally gay men, because there was almost as though gay women didn't exist in the world. So, right. you know, <laughs> even as I realized that I was a lesbian, I didn't have any experience to tell me I was a lesbian. I just knew something that I knew. It wasn't about, you know, I'm running the streets trying everything. It was kind of like... <laughs> I just, I know what I know. I know what I feel. I understand this is different. And there wasn't anyone that I could talk to near inside the family for it. So there was also the fear of breaking my family's heart. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of that. I had always been on the pedestal for my grandmother, my aunts and uncles. And, you know, everyone would basically point in my direction and say, see her, she's going to be something. You want to be like her. And, you know, a little bit of that pride, like, I'm going to, you know, rake the pedestal now and be on the ground and they're not going to respect me and they're not going to love me as much. And so ultimately was fearing the loss of love, fearing the loss of my mom's love, fearing the loss of my family's love. And it's not that it was a foolish thing. I had met far too many people who, when they came out to their families, had lost their families. Yeah. And, you know, for years I had been, I think, fortifying, making friendships that at the time supported me as family would often support each other. And my parents had already divorced, so I had already experienced the family break where literally in the fracture, there were people who went their separate ways and couldn't find their way back to even what I would call civil discourse. So I wasn't hungry for that experience with my mom. Uh, But I also recognized that I could no longer live a lie. Mm. And it was too exhausting to live the lie of, you know, being three people. My gay self, my professional self, and my straight self. Um, It was just too tired. (laughs) It's exhausting. It was exhausting. I I can't even imagine of just this, like, trying to balance all the identities in different scenarios in front of different people and how liberating it must have felt for you to just be. Just be Rosanna. Be the Rosanna Duruthi, right? Like, there's such power and liberation that comes with just being yourself. 
And I know we only have five minutes and I'm sad because I want to talk to you forever, but I want, if you don't mind, I want to revisit that time of you really owning your authenticity and learning how to be vulnerable and, and learning how to just take space. What's that? What's the one piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening who is in entering that transition phase of their life or starting to own who they are in the workplace or in their families? What's the one piece of advice that you would give? I think we all walk different paths and sometimes we will see similarities and those similarities become our connections. Yeah, the first thing that I would say is each and every one of us is a possibility and it doesn't require having things to realize the possibility. It often requires the courage to be who we are and to offer grace um, to others when they don't fully understand who we are. Mm. It's not their responsibility to understand us or get us. It's our responsibility to understand ourselves. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I would say is, you know, we create miracles every day when we wake up. We don't realize it. And the things like breathing, that's a miracle. The ability to, you know, move from one space to another in life is a miracle. The ability to give life is a miracle. The ability to give respect is magic. Respecting ourselves and respecting the people around us, no matter what their circumstances, is really important. It says more about the individual who gives the respect than the individual receiving the respect ultimately. So don't let anyone determine who you get to be. Choose for yourself. You don't need someone else's permission to be amazing. Amazing is just who you are. And then the last thing I would leave the audience with is there will always be challenges in life. So there isn't a moment when there isn't another challenge awaiting you. Mm. But the ability to live in the face of those challenges will help you be all that you aspire to be. It's not like we can have great lives and be great people without these things. I think there's something divine in our construct as human beings that situations and obstacles and things will come at us that are Sometimes unexpected. Sometimes we see it coming, but we can't quite catch it before it hits. And those are the things that I've always termed the circumstances. And the reason why it's important that we not see ourselves as our circumstances is that the moment we fix our gaze on the situation, we lose sight of who we really can be. And it doesn't mean ignore reality. On the contrary, the power of life comes in how we adapt how aware we are of ourselves and others, how we determine what matters most, how we acknowledge reality, how we plan for action and accountability, and then how we trust ourselves and trust others. Mm -hmm. So this acronym ADAPT is really about how are you going to adapt? How do you pivot in the face of the circumstance to be who you are, deal with what you have to deal with, and create something that is just incredible and amazing because that's the gift that I believe we each bring to life. Yeah, I, I could just talk to you for days. You're going to have to do some like 15-minute cafecitos every day because I just want to hear you spread some wisdom. But we do one last thing on this show that I want to do with you. If you have your cafecito, I have mine. It says cafecito and cheese mate. Oh, it's in it together. <laughs> Branding. <laughs> I love to end this with uh, with the virtual brindis, with our cafecito. It's rebranding. But I want to give you the space. What do you want to manifest for our Latino community? I would love to manifest love. Lots of love for who we are, for the richness of our culture, for the richness of the community, and for the families that we create. And I would love to manifest possibility, the possibility that we can be all that we desire of life and that all that we desire for our children. When we give ourselves to that, I'm convinced that everything is not only possible, but our destiny is created. Mm -hmm. All the mic jobs. Salud, tia. Thank you so much for being Salud, here. Corazón. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Great seeing you. 
Now, if y'all need to go sit down on the couch and just process all this beauty that y'all just heard, I don't blame you. I'm pretty sure I did the exact same thing. Thank you all for tuning in today and y'all are in for a treat this whole Hispanic Heritage Month and y'all know this space is to amplify nuestra gente so you can expect more amazing stories and guests post Hispanic Heritage Month. Y bueno pues, I am always so excited to have y'all on here and see y'all next week for more Cafecito and Chisme. For all Hello Latino updates, follow Hello Latino Podcast. You can also follow me on my personal Instagram at ojasmine and find me on LinkedIn. For any other details or information, visit my website odalisjasmine.com y con mucho amor, tu amiga Andreña.